from 1985 to 1992, there was a hit show on ABC, an American television channel, called MacGyver. You know it. <clears throat> I remember being glued to the television each week because uh, I didn't want to miss the latest adventures of Angus MacGyver. He was a secret agent who worked as a troubleshooter for the Phantom Phoenix Foundation in Los Angeles. The backstory is that MacGyver was educated as a scientist, but somehow ended up working as a bomb tech technician uh, in the Vietnam War. But what made him a draw to millions each week was not just that he was resourceful and that he flaunted an encyclopedic knowledge of the physical sciences, but MacGyver could solve the most complex, mind-boggling problems with household stuff. Broom handle, a bobby pin, stick of butter. Whether he was armed with duct tape or a Swiss Army knife, you always began watching the show, knowing, having this firm sense that there was no situation that was too difficult for MacGyver to deal with. Before the Buddha was enlightened, he was just like you and me not a MacGyver. When he sat down to meditate, he too experienced sleepiness, backaches, restless mind, and flatulence. <laughs> After his enlightenment, He became a troubleshooter extraordinaire. In fact, he laid the foundation for how to deal with problems on the path to purification. In a sense, he was the very first MacGyver in the whole world. Tonight, I'd like to offer you a few thoughts on becoming your own MacGyver, particularly when it comes to problems on the path and your practice, how to become more efficient at troubleshooting those problems, how to deal with the challenging energies that Pat talked about on Saturday, how to come home to, to the body that Jonathan talked about beautifully on Sunday night, and how to wake up from the trance of unworthiness that Tara walked us through last evening. And my offering tonight will reflect on just three areas. The function of skillful means, the power of lessons learned, and cultivating mindfulness as a factor of the path. So when we talk about skillful means, we're really just referring 
the upaya, which in Sanskrit means methods, practices, techniques that help you wake up and attune to the here and the now. So it's day five of your retreat, and by now you probably realize that the mind is almost never fully present. It sort of weaves in and out of consciousness like a drunken elephant, winding its way up the narrow roads of Nepal, sending little tiny rocks over rocky cliffs below. One minute, the mind is present, here, aware. And in the very next moment, it's like a five-year-old unaccompanied minor in the Atlantic International Airport. All it takes is for the distracted guardian to look away for just one moment, and the childlike mind wanders off, gets into trouble, and boards a plane to Malaysia. <laughs> Ajahn Shah likes to say, "It's like having a rough tooth in your mouth." Every other tooth can be just fine, but no. Where does the tongue want to go? <laughs> to that one rough tooth. Why? It's because most human impulses arise from greed, hatred, and delusion, which, as we know. Almost always ends in disaster. In the story of Don Quixote, and if you're European, Don Quixote. I thought it was cute. Quixote. Miguel Cervantes tells a story of a man named Hidalgo, who is, for all intents and purposes, good man. Courageous man, a sweet man. The problem is that he's gotten swept up in his delusions that all the books of sensational fiction that he's devoured for years and years are actually true stories. So one day he decides that it's his destiny to leave his home life, say goodbye to his friends, and to become a knight errant. Where he'll travel the countryside, right wrongs, and relieved the oppressed. Well, everybody applauded his fine motives. They knew he was a good-hearted guy. But he had become so completely deluded that his mind started playing tricks on him. So one time, he, for example, he mistook an inn for a castle, and. Refused to pay the innkeeper and got tossed out on the street embarrassingly. Another time, he went to battle with a field of windmills, thinking they were giants. And another time, still, he he mistook a, a flock of sheep 
to be a hostile army and charged into the middle of the flocks with with his sword and, and slaughtered seven sheep before the shepherd could beat him back. Finally, the poor guy wakes up from his delusion and decides to make his way home, sad, dejected, spent. So for all intents and purposes, this sounds like a a tragedy. It's certainly read like a tragedy. Except that the unaccompanied mind of Hidalgo, this, this poor little man, is actually quite typical for all of us. The minute we sense adventure, excitement, something that holds the promise of rescuing us from our boredom, our loneliness, our desperation, we don't automatically pause and ascertain the facts. We don't automatically break and evaluate the means that we have available or the downhill consequences. Instead, we fall under the spell of our delusions. We fall into what Tara calls the trance. And we get carried away, floated away, again and again, by our need for things to be different than the way they are. A father was weeding in a garden one day when his daughter started throwing those same weeds up in the air. He'd pull them out, she'd take them and throw them back. He'd pull them out, she'd throw them back. So he became red-hot angry, and he snapped at her, like really harshly, disappointingly. She went away for a moment and came back to him, and she said, Daddy, do you remember when I was five, and, and I, just started, I decided to stop being a whiner? If I can decide to stop whining at five, then you can decide to stop being a grouch. The father was Martin Seligman, the father of positive psychology. But he's also us. It's hard, it's really hard to break our habits. La likes to sing a song, Waking up is hard to do. You've got to get her to sing it before you go. It's hard because delusion is so strong. And the habit of moving toward craving is so deep. So our work is to keep guiding the mind back to the present, like a five-year-old back to what's happening right here, making this moment good enough until the mind matures and begins to show up automatically on its own, right here, like a leash-free, well-trained puppy. The Buddha said the untrained worldling only knows how to deal with unpleasant feelings by grabbing for sense pleasure. When we commit ourselves to train the mind to obey the conscious will, what we're really doing 
is increasing, expanding the likelihood that when we encounter unpleasant feelings, sleepiness, backaches, which I've heard a lot about this week, heartbreak, grief, and loss, will grab for skillful means to help us stay connected to our experience instead of grabbing for the usual poisons that numb us out. Drugs, food, credit cards, sex, busyness. For some, a suitable, skillful means is metta, or loving-kindness meditation. For others, it's anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing, or satipatthana, the four noble, the four foundations of mindfulness. For some, it's chanting, which brightens and lifts the mind. Walking meditation to calm those restless energies. The possibilities are endless, just like power drills. Just like it was yesterday, I remember walking into Home Depot several years ago to buy my first power drill because I was determined I was going to learn how to hang my own mini blinds. How hard could it be? (laughs) It was going to be a simple, straightforward process. So I get there, I step into the hardware, the tool aisle, and I tell you, I was blown away by how many drills there are. (laughs) By the way, did you know there are left-angle drills, right-angle drills, hammer drills, air drills, rotary drills. I'm standing there and I'm like, look, I just, I need a drill to do what I need to do. That's all I need is give me a drill to do what I need to do. But I didn't know what means I needed. And that was important. Which is probably why he looked at me that way. Someone asked Analayo, what do you teach? And his response, I teach metta and the three characteristics. He kept it simple. Even the Buddha, when he gave a teaching to the monks at Kosambi, the Simsapa forest, those things, he said, those things I have known with direct knowledge but have not taught, are far more numerous. And why haven't I taught them? Because they're not connected to the goal. They don't relate to the rudiments of the holy life. And they don't lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. That's why I have not taught them. What I take from this teaching is that we don't need to know all the skillful means in the universe. I don't need to know what works for Tara. 
I don't need to know what works for Jonathan or Pat. We simply need to know and accept what works for you. What works to help you deal with the anger, the sadness, the busy mind, the restlessness, the irritation that you've probably experienced quite a bit this week? How can we know what skillful means will help us? Rilke had an idea. Go into yourself, he says, and test the deeps into which your life takes rise. Go into yourself and test the deeps in which your life takes rise. Every time we choose to stay present for what's happening right now, when you get bored with your life, when you find yourself waiting for something more interesting to happen, when you go outside yourself, you're going in. You're taking it in and testing those deeps. And as we dare to take that journey inward and not keep going out looking for the answers, we discover what Deepama discovered when she wrote, there seems to be so much sameness in ordinary life. But when greed, hatred, and delusion are not present, every moment is new with taste and zest. Now the big question is how do you do that? How can we create a life that we don't need to take a vacation from. A life in which every moment is new with taste and zest. We reflect on lessons learned. We reflect without turning away from whatever we find the selfish part of me, the jealous part, the petty part. Arjun Amaro refers to this kind of reflection as knowing the committee members that live in your head. There's always the chairperson who thinks they're in charge and usually talks the loudest. You know you're a big fat loser, right? You know, Tara is a real teacher. You, not so much. But the thing is that by now, years into my practice, it's more like, wait, wait, wait. I know that voice. I know that voice. That's the you suck feeling. (laughs) That's the you're never going to get it right feeling. That's the everybody's doing it perfectly except you and this retreat is almost over and I've gotten nowhere feeling. 
And then the moderator of the committee steps in and says, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> Duly noted. Let's hear from the other committee members. Okay. So we reflect on what we know about ourselves because I already know that self-deprecation lives in my head. It's been the chairperson of my committee for 50 years. I know that voice. So we frame with mindfulness the voices that we have heard before that dog us relentlessly. We reflect what has happened in the past, what has brought us peace and ease. We reflect on what hasn't worked, what has left us cowering and shriveled in a corner. I said to someone just a few days ago in a group, you can wish upon a dog all you want. It's never going to become a cat. Wishing is not a strategy. But now seeing, seeing clearly, seeing the way it is, that's a strategy, which is why it is the first factor on the Eightfold Path, Samaditi. And dealing Dealing with the way it is, that's a strategy, which is why it's the second factor on the Eightfold Path, Sama Sankapa. The 21st hexagram of the I Ching says, first understanding, then acting, and everything will be as you will. But how does this understanding, this recognizing and reign come about? How does it happen? You've heard it a million times. Recognize, recognize. How does it come about? One of my favorite movies, all-time favorites, is Groundhog Day. It's a story about a calendar date, February 1st, and a man, Bill Murray, that became bound together in this, like, really painful dance. So in the story, Bill Murray travels to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, to cover the annual Groundhog Day festivities on February 2nd, which he does, but begrudgingly with irritation and frustration. So his team has to finish up. They finish up. He does sort of a half-hearted job. He get ready to leave town, and a blizzard hits. So they've got to turn around and go back to Puxatani and spend another night there. Well, when he wakes up the next morning, on February 2nd, he finds that he's reliving the same day all over again. And the day plays out exactly the way it had played out before, with no one but him aware of the time loop. So now at first he's confused, but then after he keeps reliving the same day over and over and over, he discovers that he can take advantage of the situation with no fear of long-term consequences. So he, he learns the town folk's secrets. And he seduces women. He gets drunk. He steals money. He winds up getting tossed in jail. Finally, he gets depressed. And he decides... He's got to end it. 
So he steals the groundhog. <laughs> You've seen the movie. <laughs> he kidnaps the groundhog <laughs> and drives him over into a quarry to kill himself. And it works. Except that the very next morning, February 1st, he wakes up and nothing has changed. And despite further attempts to kill himself, he, does, he tries again and again. But every morning at 6 o'clock sharp, he wakes up to the same Sonny and Cher song. He's got forced to climb back on that gerbil wheel of suffering in Poxitani, Pennsylvania. He hopes, he hopes it will stop. But hope is not a strategy. So eventually he decides to, to reflect on lessons learned and to use those reflections to save lives, to, to, to help people out, to change his attitude about reporting on those boring Groundhog Day festivities that have driven him nuts before. It was only when he surrendered, when he stopped resisting the way it is, because it shouldn't be that way, then he woke up and realized he was out of the time loop and his life could go on. I grew up a Christian. My father was a deacon in the Baptist church. My mother became a Pentecostal because she couldn't stand my father. Only reason. true story. (laughs) One of the spirituals I grew up listening to since I was like 10 years old, and you probably know it, it's called I Surrender All. Do you know it? I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Oh, somebody said sing it. Trying to get me in trouble. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. You know it? Pema Children, she writes, Nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. Nothing. So this is the function of reflecting on lessons learned. We are allowing the way it is to teach us what we need to surrender all. And we're surrendering all to the way it is in order to be free. There's a story in the Sufi tradition of a man named Nasruddin who's sitting in a Middle Eastern marketplace with tears pouring down his cheeks and a platter of peppers spilling out onto the ground. So carefully, methodically, deliberately, he keeps popping these peppers into his mouth, wailing 
uncontrollably. At one point, his friends gather around him. They're like, what's the matter? What's wrong with you? And to a river of tears, he chokes and he gasps and he says, I'm looking for a sweet one. (laughs) But, But isn't that just like us? We get so easily caught in our delusions of finding the sweet spot in our practice, the sweet spot in the meditation hall, the sweet relationship, the sweet circumstances, that we just keep creating suffering for ourselves over and over because we've perfected the strategies that keep us stuck in our memorials to our suffering. But we have cultivated so few strategies for dealing with the challenges of our practice. And this is why we need skillful means. We need methods or techniques for getting unstuck. We need a commitment to reflect on what works, to accept what doesn't work. And like the serenity prayer, the wisdom to know the difference. Don't ask me. It took me decades. I'm not, I can't tell you what your spiritual means are, what your skillful means are. No one can tell you. It took me decades to, to, to acknowledge, to, to become aware, to realize, and even decades beyond my realization that I was never, ever going to wake up in, in a romantic relationship. For my temperament, the clinging was just too strong. So for me, taking the lifetime eight precepts was a skillful means. So it's like that. You have to see for yourself. You can't ask anybody else what are skillful means for you. But at the same time, not to be too hard on ourselves either because we have to remember that causes and conditions have led us to this moment. And we remember that, but then we forget it. And then we remember it again, and then we forget it again. Why? Because oftentimes we're meditating not for watching the way it is, or reflecting on the way it is, but we're meditating to get the experience we want. And there's a big difference. So we have to reflect. What does reflection look like? Just before the Buddha's enlightenment, he reflected on the right attitude when as a child he sat under the rose apple tree and discovered deep meditative states. The Buddha offered this teaching to his son Rahula on reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily, verbal, or mental action, you should reflect on it. This action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful action 
with painful consequences or painful results. So the function of skillful means is to help us deal with the problems that arise in life and practice. And the benefit of reflecting on those lessons learned is that we avoid the unnecessary painful results. So then, what is the role of mindfulness? Mindfulness in Pali is sati, which means to recollect, to remember. What are we remembering exactly? That everything is impermanent. That it is not ultimately satisfying. And it's not controlled by you. Just like the little kid driving the, you know, the, the basket, the cart that Pat talked about. How exactly do we remember this? According to the Buddha, there are four foundational ways to remember this truth. We reflect on the body. We reflect on feelings that come and go. We reflect on the nature of mind. And we reflect on phenomena. What's a good analogy for what mindfulness is so you can see its contours? Arjun Chah referred to mindfulness as the loving guardian that watches over the mind. I thought that was so beautiful when I first heard it. The loving guardian. As we come to know this loving guardian and stay in close contact with this loving guardian, then our relationship with it gets stronger and stronger and we become more and more accessible to it. We know that as if a child has had a loving parent growing up, that it's more likely to stay in close contact as he ages. We also know that if a child doesn't have a loving parent growing up, he will not only not remember the parent when he ages, he won't remember the birthday, he won't remember Mother's Day, he won't remember Father's Day, but that child also will not have a home to come back to. He won't identify with that parent as home. In his groundbreaking book, Out of Touch, the subtitle, I believe, was When Parents and and Children Lose Contact After Divorce, Jeffrey Grief writes, if the visiting parent stays in touch, the message is sent to the children that even though the marriage has ended with work and communication, conscientious and consistent caring for the children can continue. 
This is how it is with our mindfulness practice, which we're either in a committed marriage to, or we visit it from time to time. (laughs) You know what I mean. On retreat, we take it for a walk a couple times a week to the park. So I've compiled a small list of attitudes that I like to imagine my loving guardian reminding me of every day before I leave the house. Right after she packs my lunch, kisses me on the forehead, takes both my cheeks in her hands. Six things that I would want to be reminded of by my loving guardian. Trudy, dear, she would say, if your heart is closed, nothing will get in to hurt you, but nothing will get in to love you either. Bema Chodron writes, we think we're protecting ourselves when we close like a sea anemone, protecting our vulnerable heart like we're sitting in a dentist's chair. All the tensing and tightening and bracing against pain that we do just keeps pulling us away from direct experience. My job Mindfulness is to let you recognize when your heart is closing down and suffering. So the more opening and allowing becomes a natural response, the more your heart expands in its capacity to connect with other beings. So as you go out to meet the life-size difficulties in the hushed and quiet hours that Rilke wrote about, Ask yourself Joko Beck's question. Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? situation. Two, it's really important to remember that using skillful means is not about getting anything from your practice. It's not about becoming anything as a result of practice, because that's just another form of tanha or craving. A Wutu Zen master put it this way. He says, I've practiced for 20 years, and now I really know shame. Not from failing to realize the Dharma, but of not being able to internalize the Dharma in everyday life. To cultivate an everyday life dharma 
that's free from the causes and conditions of suffering that someone asked the question about this morning. That's why you have me. Mindfulness. Three. Consider. Just consider. Accepting the limitations of your mind and your body. And don't compare it to anyone. This means getting really cozy with what you can and what you cannot do. Regardless of how painful it may be to accept that. In other words, keep lowering the bar to happiness until it disappears altogether. We're not clinging to the way it was. We're not clinging to the way it could be. We're not even clinging to the way it is. I remember hearing Joseph Goldstein say once, it does not matter to what you do not cling. Four, wear down your unskillful habits gradually with patience and endurance. Remember, the mind is the way it is because of causes and conditions, which is why you should never leave home without your metagoggles. Because whenever you're wearing them, you see the world in a completely different, open, curious, and friendly way. I've also noticed how harshly you see the world when you leave your metagoggles at home. Oh, by the way, there's a story about some horses in Japan that stopped eating because the grass turned brown. I believe due to a lack of rain. And this was getting to be concerning for the breeders, so somebody had a bright idea. They covered the horse's eyes with green-tinted goggles so that everything they saw, including the grass, looked green. Can you guess what happened? (laughs) They ate the same grass they had previously refused and was making a big fuss about. So it's just like that. If you let me go with you and keep me close by all the time, then you won't get talked into all kinds of trouble. You know, because your delusion is strong and your conditioning is old and deep. So you have to be patient and sweet with your three-year-old self because it's going to take her a while to wear down all that conditioning. By the way, never let go of her hand. Never throw under the bus. And never take sides against her. Ever. Five. If you were born alive, in some sense, you've already made it. All that's left is realizing it. Sometimes that can 
help take the pressure out of worrying that the goal is out there and unattainable. It's like searching the world over for your car keys, only to realize that um, you're holding them. Six, and finally, don't believe them when they tell you that Buddhist practice is grim business. It's not true. You can have some fun with it. Keeping a good sense of humor can actually support your practice. Because not only can it increase those gamma waves that Pat was talking about the other night, but it can remind you that in the same way that overindulging in sense desire is not the middle way, denial is not the middle way either. Keeping a good sense of humor is fun. And it's funny. But it's more than that. We are able to laugh at ourselves to the same degree that we are able to love ourselves. And if we can't love ourselves, if we can't extend kindness toward ourselves, then we can't laugh. My friends, with all my heart, it is my wish that you be fearless and efficient in your use of skillful means to troubleshoot and deal with the problems in your practice. May you wisely reflect on lessons learned without turning away from whatever you find. And may you strengthen your relationship with a loving guardian called mindfulness. And through that loving relationship, may you become kind enough to laugh out loud and often. So let's just sit for a few moments. There's a poem by Naomi Nye called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be 
between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. But you learn the tender gravity of kindness. Before you learn, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. May you be well, happy, and peaceful. May you be free from suffering and its causes. May you attain to the great goal of liberation in this life. Thank you for your kind attention and blessings.